I've walked these many miles, have aged my hands, bruised my feet. Pressing my pen to the paper, leaving a legacy that I did not intend. In our truest character, I don't believe we intend to be great. Our minds waver with fear that our heart is not capable of great things. What is our potential as heroes? Will we be people that run away from the fire or toward it? My destination may be unknown, but my path is set. My journey is fixed on one direction, forward. Maybe it's that very thing that defines us as legends, the hero of our stories. Above all else, our desire and our hope should now and always be to move forward. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. He goes on, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen, writes the Apostle Paul. A genuine encounter with Christ will genuinely transform your life. My name is Scott Rogers. I'm glad to be here with you guys at Cornerstone. For all of you joining us at Cornerstone Online at the 5 o'clock service right here tonight and right now. Come on, guys, let's give it up. We're in church. We're ready to do this. Ready to have a good time. This is my loud and rowdy crowd. I tell you what, I'm really excited to be here. I've been here a few times, and it's pretty much like family now. We came down from uh, Folsom, California is where we live. And what's funny about this is the last three times I've been to Phoenix, it's rained. We're living in a drought in Northern California, and I come down here, it feels like I'm coming to the tropics. It's like Florida in the desert. It's, it's crazy. But I'm excited to be here with you today because today we kick off a brand new message series called Legend. And before I go there, I get to do a selfless plug that Pastor Lynn let me do because since the last time I was here, I had a little side project going on and I released a small book on Amazon Kindle. But here's what's funny. You think, okay, Scott wrote a book. Well, keep in mind, it's only 38 pages long and it's written in fourth grade language. And it's for those of us who are kind of stuck in life. It's called One Decision. And it came out of a bunch of conversations with other men. And we would sit across the table having coffee together or something like that. And guys would say, you know, I'm just stuck in my faith. I'm stuck in my marriage. I'm stuck in my career. I'm stuck. I can't seem to get momentum on my side. What do you think I can do? 
And the only reason I could speak back to that is because I've been there so many times and it all comes down to one, seeking God, but asking ourselves the question, what is the next one decision that I can make that will help me move forward in the direction that I want to go? So I stretched that one thought out into 38 pages and you can check it out at the website that was on the screen. It'll point you there. And uh, we got a video that we made just for you guys here at Cornerstone. So check it out. Now back to the better stuff and the important stuff. This series called Legend. Everybody say Legend. Man, legends are all around us, and some have, have gone before us, and they've gone, they've they passed on. Many of them are still with us. And when I think of what is a legend, in my mind, my, my definition is really those whose lifetime achievement still lives on, and what they've accomplished is still impacting our world. And I think of legendary moments as well, like Steve Jobs, the time years ago when he's trying to recruit John Scully from PepsiCo to go to Apple. And he says, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to come with me and change the world? I think, oh yeah, legendary stuff. The legendary evangelist D.L. Moody who said, our greatest fear should not be of failure but of accomplishing something that doesn't really matter. Legends. Every culture has them. Every subculture has them. We've had them in, in, throughout history. Think about the world leaders. George Washington, right? Legends. Abraham Lincoln. Martin Luther King Jr. Rosa Parks. Florence Nightingale. Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Legends here. Changing the world. Sports legends. Vince Lombardi. Walter Payton, Bo Jackson, Michael Jordan, Brittany Griner, the Phoenix Mercury. Come on. All the ladies say amen. Legends of film. John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe for some of the old schoolers. Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Will Ferrell. Legends of film. Legends of music. The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Coldplay, Miley Cyrus, changing culture, legends, it lives on. You go to the Bible, Adam and Eve, Moses and David, Solomon, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, Esther, legends. John the Baptist, Jesus, the risen Christ, the risen Savior. And then we come to a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, an amazing man of faith, an amazing man of courage. But it wasn't always that way for Paul. And in this series called Legends, we're going to take a look at the life of the Apostle Paul. But we're not going to try to make a hero out of Paul. Because whenever we study scripture and we see how God uses people and how he interacts with their life, the goal is always to know God more, to not worship a person. So we're going to learn how does God interact with people? How did he work in Paul's life? And what can we learn about that and apply it to our life in this whole series? We're looking at Paul. This guy was an incredible man of God. However, he had two big things against him. His first one was the dude was very religious. Maybe you're th sitting there thinking, well, religion, isn't, that, isn't that a good thing, being religious? Now, I'm not talking about a, a person devoted to prayer 
and devoted to shoveling the snow out of the driveway for your neighbor if they can't get out and help and do it themselves. I'm talking about religion in the sense of I am better than you. I know God better than you. I know what he wants and I do that stuff more than you. I'm a self-righteous, arrogant, egotistical, religious human being. That's the kind of religious guy that Paul was. In fact, there's a point in the New Testament where he writes about himself and he says that he had followed the law more than anybody else. He says this in uh, Philippians 3, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. A very religious man. Another thing he had against him was he was a persecutor of Christians, of people following Jesus. He literally took it upon himself to be God's policeman against this new movement that people who claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, he's out, he's going after them, and he is present when they're being persecuted, and he is with them killing Christians. This is Paul, and here's what it says in uh, Acts chapter eight, and there's this guy named Stephen, and Stephen is a follower of Christ, and a man of faith, and he's sharing his faith, and people start persecuting him and literally stoning him with death, to death with big rocks and pelting him with rocks. He's on the ground. He's about ready to die. And the, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Interesting. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, but Saul, who, it's synonymous with Paul. So when I say Saul, I mean Paul. And it's in the Bible, he, he starts out with his name Saul and then it turns into Paul. I don't know, maybe it's that meta world peace name changing thing, I don't know, it's still going on. But it says in verse three, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church and he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. This is the guy whom God uses to write half of the New Testament. In my opinion, the second most influential man in the history of the world, second to Jesus Christ, is the Apostle Paul. Yet he was a very religious man in a negative sense. He killed people who loved Christ. But something happened. Something happened along the way. A genuine encounter with Christ genuinely changes your life. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 9 because we're going to camp there for just a few minutes and dig into a few verses and pull out some observations that apply to our life in a big, big way. It's Acts chapter nine, verse one through five. And it says this, meanwhile, Saul, again, Paul, he was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's, the Lord's followers. This dude was serious, man. He's a vigilante, he's a hunter, and his prey were people who loved Christ. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, Damascus was, is in Syria, and it's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It's literally the same as going from Phoenix to Flagstaff. That's the distance there, about 150 miles. So they had letters addressed to synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. The Bible would call Christians different things, followers of the way, saints, believers, Christians, so they're all synonymous. So th then it says, any follows the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. So here's Paul. He has a genuine Roswell, New Mexico experience, all right? 
It's the real deal, though. The light shines down from heaven around him. He fell to the ground, verse 4. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Some of us would call this Paul's Damascus Road experience. This is when he is converted into a relationship with God. The man who is religious more than maybe anybody else around has at least an Ivy League education, very intelligent, very zealous for his religious faith. He obeys all the Old Testament stuff, all 613 laws. This guy has it down. He says, I was faultless in regard to the law. And imagine this, he's out killing Christians, literally believing that he was doing justice for God. He did not, this was blasphemy to him, blasphemy. He's on the road to Damascus and this light shines down from heaven and Jesus himself speaks to him audibly. Now I can only speculate, but I want to imagine what is going on in Paul's mind during this time. In all of his education, all of his religiosity, what's going on? I wonder if he's like thinking, oh my gosh, it's true. Everything these crazy people are saying about this Jesus being raised from the dead, it's real, it's true. And then in addition to that, maybe he's thinking, and everything I've believed and come to know about the God who I thought I served is not right, it's wrong. He's very religious, but he's spiritually blind. And he comes to that place, he has this experience with the risen Christ, this Damascus Road experience. So what happens when we genuinely have an encounter with Christ? What happened in the life of Paul? A lot of the same things happen in our life, though his deal is unique. I don't know if anybody in this room who knows Christ, who had a light shine down from heaven, and Jesus said, yo, man, I didn't have that, but... My experience was unique to yours and yours will be to mine. If you don't know him yet, when you have that experience, it will be unique to you. However, God is still the same. Who he is, his nature and his character. And so I have some thoughts on this out of this text. And the first one is this, is that when we genuinely encounter Christ, I mean, when we genuinely encounter Christ, not just pray a little prayer and, and you know, move on, but when we genuinely encounter Christ, our life is radically disrupted. It's a radical disruption. Let's take a look back in this text in verse three. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what's interesting about that real quick? Is that Jesus takes it personally when someone persecutes his church. Why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? I guess if anybody speaks from heaven, you're gonna address him as Lord. And the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And our life is radically disrupted, just like Paul's life, because what happens is when we get to that place where God reveals himself to us, when we begin to see him for more of who he really is, it's in that moment that we actually begin to see ourselves more for who we really are. And I'll tell you, we are small. We are weak, we are frail, we are broken. As tough as we may think we are, when we see a glimpse of an almighty, all-creating, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-present God, we suddenly kind of shrink a little bit. And I think that's good. 
And we see him and all of a sudden our life is radically disrupted and it's in that moment as it was with Paul where he becomes our savior. Paul has this moment and he's like, Lord, okay, I'm yours. And that happens in our life as well. I was uh, in, uh, hopped in a pickup truck in 1991, January of 1991. Anybody here not born yet in 1991? Raise your hand, go ahead. It's all right. I feel horribly old. I was six weeks old, I'm sure, at that time. It's the only lie I'm going to tell you in this whole deal. 1991, we hopped in this pickup truck, and I was with my friend Todd. And we're going to go from where we lived, where I grew up, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we're driving to Los Angeles, California, Culver City to be specific. And what had happened was Todd and I had been friends for a number of years. He lived in L.A., he moved back to Michigan. He came back to Michigan, and he is like this all-out Jesus freak, religious guy, talking about God and Jesus and eternity and heaven and hell and the Bible and church and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what happened to my friend? Because at that point in time in my life, I'd been to church twice. Once I was in uh, a Catholic church, and I honestly don't remember. This sounds horrible. I'm just such a bad guy here. I don't remember if it was a funeral or a wedding. But I was there. <laughs> Some of you are saying, hmm, kind of synonymous for me. But anyway, all right, moving on. I don't know what, I can't remember what it was, but I was so, I didn't know what was all this stuff and all the, the traditions so that didn't connect with me at all. And then the only other time I was in church was I went to a, a Protestant church and this, I went in and all these adults are hugging me. And they're all hugging me. And my, in my home, we did not hug. We did not have an affectionate home. So it creeped me out, man. I'm telling you, people are hugging me. And I'm like, get away from me. This is and I And I said to myself internally, I was like, I will never come back to not only this church again, but I will never go back to a church in my life because they are full of creeps. These people keep them away from me. And literally, and I didn't for years. So Todd comes back and he moves back and he's talking about Jesus. So I'm thinking, oh gosh, this is, I don't know what to do with this. A couple weeks go by, he calls me on the phone. He says, hey, I got to go back to LA to pick up a bunch of stuff to bring it back home. Do you want to ride with me? And I, I was always up for a good road trip. I mean, come on, it's the middle of winter in Michigan, people. Everybody wants to escape. I'll tell you this, I don't think hell is hot. It's cold. It snows in hell. I, it's not what the Bible says, but I'm just saying, in my opinion. So I'm like, I'm out of here, I'm going. So we hop into the cab of the pickup truck in January 1991, driving 2,450 miles to Culver City. Guess what Todd wants to talk about? <laughs> Jesus. And I kid you not, I was thinking, what have I got myself into? And we were great friends. He wasn't combatant, like very, like, in, in his, we talked about God, so that wasn't the issue, but I was, he was talking about all this relationship with Jesus and what Jesus has done in his life and on and on and on. And for the first day, we drive nonstop. First day, I'm totally resistant. I'm thinking, this is crazy. Okay, dude, this is good for you. You're believing in something that's not true. Evidently, you're a weak human being and you need something to hold on to, to believe there's a God who actually loves you. So good for you, it works for you. I'm all right, man. So the first day, I'm totally, totally resistant. The second day, God starts to just break me down. I'm telling you. Todd says things that to me begin to connect the dots and just make complete sense. So I go from resistant to curious. 
And I started asking some pretty deep questions. And I kid you not, his response every single time was like he was reading my mail. I look back on it now and I know as God was speaking to me through this guy. And we were driving in the middle of the night through the desert in Nevada. Total truth. I'm not over-dramatizing this for effect. This is a total truth. Middle of the night, we're driving through the desert. Todd's driving. And at that point in time, man, God had just rattled my cage and it just made sense. And I wanted to give my life to Christ. And I literally remember the moment I was going to turn to my left. He's driving the truck and I was going to say, Todd, I want Jesus in my life. What do I do? And at that same moment, we crest this hill and I see Las Vegas, the strip, lit up at night. I'd never been there before in my whole life. Simultaneously, I'm telling you the truth, simultaneously, and not only did those two things happen, but right when I see Vegas, I want to turn to him and say, Todd, I want Jesus in my life. What do I do? I heard an audible voice in my head and it said this, Scott, don't do it. Because if you give your life to Jesus, you're going to end up living in Africa in the bush. <laughs> Honest to God truth. I was confused. I'm like, what? I had never been to Africa. I'm this little kid that grew up in, I mean, this is like growing up in Queen Creek, man. I didn't get out. Africa, and I didn't even know what the bush was. I didn't listen in school. Don't listen, kids, don't listen to that. I'm just telling you. I didn't, I don't know. And so I didn't do it. Like, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think I want to live in Africa. I certainly don't want to live in the bush because I don't know what that is. That just scares me. I don't want to do it. And then look back now, and it's kind of funny. But I can't help but think as I read my Bible, it clearly says we have a spiritual enemy. And if he wants to communicate to us, sometimes I guess he gets through and I think that he spoke to me and talked me out and give my life to Christ. Well, Scott, how do you know that's the devil? Well, whenever a voice speaks to you and says, don't go to Jesus, ah, you're probably pretty close. It's probably somebody from his camp, okay? <laughs> probably. So I didn't do it. And we go into Vegas, and, and it was my first time there. And, but it was interesting because I began to see the world through a whole different lens because Todd was answering my questions. And in fact, God was answering my questions. And we get to L.A., and one day we're hanging out. We go to the beach, and we're at this little beach called Manhattan Beach. Nothing special about it. We're walking along the beach, and I feel a, something hit my hand. And I never saw the person's face, but they put in my hand a little piece of paper. And some of you old schoolers may know what I mean when I say it was a gospel tract. Anybody remember that? And what that was was like, uh, maybe they still have them. It's just a little piece of paper that shares the message of Jesus and it throws out like the Romans Road or the Four Spiritual Laws or something like that. But on the back of it, it will have a prayer. If you want to give Jesus your life, pray this prayer. So I get that. I never saw the person. I don't know if a guy or a girl, I, I don't know. It was just in my hand. We get back to the house that night in Culver City. I'm in this little bedroom and I kneel down beside this bed. I read through that and I pray this little prayer on this piece of paper of, from whom I never even saw their face and I ask Christ into my life. And it was in that moment, my life was radically disrupted. Radically disrupted. In my job, in my mind, is not to question anybody's relationship with God here today. But I will say that if you have asked Christ into your life 
and you think you've encountered him, but he has not radically disrupted your life and you've just gone back to life as usual, I would revisit that moment and say, did I really give my life to Christ? Because when we do, he disrupts everything. He disrupts it. Another thing that happens in our life that happened to Paul is when we encounter Christ, not only does he disrupt our life, but we are now marked by obedience. Look in verse six of uh, chapter nine. And here's what happens to Paul. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, hold on, here, let me pull this up. Sorry, verse six. Now we, now get up, this is God talking to Paul. He says, now get up and go into the city. So remember, God knocks him on his can. I'm gonna say this because this is, yeah. All right, let's do this. I love pushing the envelope a little bit. Guys, all right, I'm not a tough guy. Obviously, you can tell. But if you're a tough guy or you think you are, just know this, that the Jesus that I know and the Jesus of the Bible who knocked Paul on his can, Jesus can knock you on your asterisk anytime he wants. All right? This is who we're talking about here. His life is marked by obedience. He says to Paul, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So when we give our life to Christ, he disrupts everything. But then there's this, this call on our life to be obedient to him. Now here's the catch though, because for so many of us, especially in American culture, obey is a four-letter word and it's a swear word. But Paul, think about it, he was very educated, highly religious, so obedience was part of his nature. He knew how to obey all of the law. But I think there's a, well, I know there's a difference between obedience that comes from being religious and obedience that comes out of the fruit of a relationship with God. Religion, my little term for it is, it's the perfect science of making easy things difficult. And religion is our way from the outside in trying to do things to please God so that he will accept us. The problem with that is the Bible. It says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're living a life, it's kind of the scale, the religious scale thing. You know the scales where you put something on one of the deals and it tips this way and you put something a little heavier and it goes this way? It's as if we think in our mind, one, that God's cruel enough to create that type of system where he says, all right, here's the scale. I've got it up in heaven and I'm watching you. I'm like Santa Claus, I'm watching you, seeing if you're naughty or nice. And when you're nice and you do something good, it tips the scale in your favor. And if you do enough of the good stuff, by the time when your heart stops beating and you step into eternity, hopefully that scale is tipping in the right direction so you can slide on into heaven. But if it doesn't, and you tip the scale the other way, you know what I know what's crazy about that is you can do all the good stuff and good, 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 but when you make one big mess up and sin, doesn't it feel like bam, that's the scale that goes all the way in the opposite direction? Living a life of religion that tries to please God for acceptance is futile. It's exhausting and it just doesn't work. However, an obedient-based life with Jesus that is the fruit of a relationship with him is entirely different. When we know that God loves us and we know that he accepts us, 
in spite of what we've done. When we know that he sent his son to die on the cross for us and raise him from the dead so that we can be redeemed, we can be forgiven, that we can live a life of communion and relationship with him and that our life was meant for something even more significant than comfort but it's made for eternity and God has heaven waiting for us when we know that he's for us and he's not against us. When we know that when we go through tough times, he comes alongside us and will walk through it with us and give us strength and comfort in those times. When we know that, our only reasonable response is obedience because we want to. We desire to obey him because we know he's good at the essence. Here's what Paul actually wrote about this whole thought. In uh, Philippians 2.13, it's not on the screen, but let me just read it to you. He says, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Isn't that interesting? For those of us who have a relationship with Christ, it says that God is at work in us, giving us, giving us the desire to please him. God puts in us the desires of our heart and he fills us with the passion to please him and be obedient to him. And then he also goes on and says, and, uh, and he also gives us the power to do what pleases him. So not only does he put desires in our heart that are godly and that are God-honoring, he gives us the ability to live it out because of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we genuinely encounter Christ, our life is one that's marked with obedience. This is really where Jesus becomes Lord. When he just disrupts everything, he becomes our savior. When we start to obey, he's really our Lord. And my last thought is this, when we genuinely encounter Christ, our life takes on a new mission. It takes on a new mission. Here's what it says in uh, Acts 9, 13, 15. And it's this guy named Ananias. So Ananias, he comes on the scene and Ananias is a relatively new believer in Christ. He's following Jesus and check it out. His life is already one that's marked by obedience because the Lord speaks to him. And Ananias had heard all the stories of Saul this guy persecuting and killing believers. And he knows, they're dragging him off to prison, the men and the women, and I don't want anything to do with that. And God tells him, no, you need to go because I brought him here. He's at this guy's house down on this street and I made him blind for a few days so just to humble him and he's, he's waiting and I'm gonna send you to pray for him so that I open his eyes back up, he can see and you're gonna tell him what he must do next. And Ananias responds, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But Lord, but the Lord said, go. Isn't that funny? You ever argue with God? And you come up with all these logical reasons why what you believe he's asking you to do is illogical. And then you tell him everything. And then if you find enough space in your life to get quiet and listen for his response, often he'll just say, Go. All right. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. Saul's life now takes on a new mission. And it's the same for you and for me when we give our life to Christ. We see the world as different. We weren't simply born to live and to consume and then stay as healthy as we can until we die. We were placed in the timeline of creation for such a time as you're in right now for a grander purpose. 
One is to enjoy God. One is to love your neighbor as yourself. But what does God want to accomplish in his grand scheme with my life now? Our life takes on a brand new mission. And next week, Pastor Lynn is going to teach and he's going to talk about what does a life of being all in look like? Well, let's look to Paul and see what that looks like for him and let's apply it to our life. So make sure you're back here next week to hear from Lynn. So I come back from, uh, from Los Angeles, from Culver City. Pray that little prayer on that piece of paper. Someone gives me a Bible while I'm there. It's this paperback Bible. And on the drive back, I read the book of Matthew. And man, my head is spinning. My heart's aflame of the things of God. A lot of questions are coming up. More and more answers are coming my way. And I am stoked because my disruption is now creating a desire to be obedient to the things of God. I never even thought about obeying God because I didn't care less if he existed or not. And now I've taken on a new mission in life. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew I couldn't go back to the way things were. It was gonna be different from here on out. It was a new start. And I come back and I get home in Michigan. And sometime maybe I'll tell you the story of my life and our family life. Very, very, very dysfunctional. Many of you can relate. Some of you might be like, wow, I guess God really does exist and he's really good because that's crazy. I get back home and my mom is sitting at the, the dining room table in our little house. I walk in and I have my Bible in my hand. I put it on the kitchen table and she just kind of sits there and the look on her face was like, what happened? We don't do God. We don't do that thing. And I didn't say this exactly, but this is basically what I said because I don't remember what I said because it's been a while. But I literally had nothing more to say than I've had a genuine encounter with Christ. And he's genuinely transformed my life. And it wasn't too long after that, just being an average Joe who didn't know a lot, but loving my mom and dad, they gave their life to Christ and did some radical, radical transformation in their life. But that's what happens when we encounter Christ. Thanks. That's what happens when we genuinely encounter him. Not some little token prayer. Not some little, you know, do a little duty, go to church kind of thing. When we genuinely call out on him and he responds and we encounter him, life is disrupted. We want to obey him because he's God. And our life takes on a whole new mission. Don't leave here today being religious. It's, it's, it's vanity. You can't do it. It's exhausting. You'll, it, it doesn't work. Don't be someone who's religious thinking you have to earn your way for acceptance. Be someone who says, I want to know you and I want a relationship with you. That's where the fruit of it is. Let's bow our heads and let's, let's close our eyes. Father God, today we're praying, and those of us in the five o'clock service as well, we're praying, God, that you would show yourself to us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're sitting here and you know exactly what I'm saying. You've been there. You've experienced this stuff. Don't keep it to yourself. Share Christ with other people. But maybe you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe today, maybe today, this is your Damascus Road experience. 
Maybe you feel like, because I don't see any light shining down from heaven in here other than stage lights, but maybe for you, you feel like God has got his spotlight right on you right now. So much so that you think everybody's looking at you. We're not, but God is. And his spotlight is on you right now because you feel it in your heart, a pull toward him, maybe like you've never had before. Maybe today is your Damascus Road experience. Maybe you thought you knew him, but you were just religious. And today is the day to let that go. Maybe you weren't religious at all like me, but God is saying, I'm here, I'm real, I love you. Invite me into your life. And you're sitting here today and you'd say, Scott, I want Christ into my life. You're like I was in the cab of that pickup truck wanting to turn to Todd and say, Todd, I want Jesus in my life. What do I do? I wouldn't be surprised if you hear another voice, maybe it's subtle, that says, don't do it. Don't do it. He's tricking you. He's lying to you. Let God speak louder than that voice and respond to him. Give your life to him. We're going to pray a prayer. And it's a prayer. This is not some token religious prayer, but this is a prayer that would disrupt things. This is a prayer that will call out an obedient life to Christ. And this is a prayer that will send you on a new mission. You're sitting here, your head's bowed, your eyes closed, you don't have a relationship with him, and you know that's the decision that he's calling you to make. I want to include you in this prayer. And you say, Scott, that's me. I want Christ in my life. Include me in this prayer. I'm going to give my life to him today. If that's you, I want you to be bold, man. Just lift your hand. I want to see who I get to pray for. Just where you're sitting, I see a couple of three hands right here, four hands in this section. Went right up. Praise God. I see you right here in the middle. A couple of you right here, three of you. Awesome. Awesome. You want Christ in your life. I see your hand back there. Praise God. Sir, yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you're here. Who else? Scott, include me in this prayer. I want Christ in my life. Yeah, I see your hand right over here. Good for you. And sir, yours right over here as well. And back to my right. I don't want to rush this moment. We've got time. Back against the wall. Praise God for you. Scott, I want Christ. Yeah, right back over here. I want Christ in my life. Right back over here. Ma'am, I see your hand right here. I don't keep track when you raise your hand, but I probably about a dozen people maybe. Yeah, right up, right up in this section here. Praise God for you. We're going to pray. All these young, young boys right here, that's, oh, that's phenomenal. Everybody look at me for just one sec, if, if you can. I didn't want to sound rude when I said that. Is that all right? A few little boys raised their hands. Here's the deal. It's better to build boys and girls than have to repair men and women. It's better to give your life to Christ when you're younger than I was. A whole bunch of you raised your hand wanting to give your life to Christ. We're going to pray. And I want you to say this prayer out loud. And I want you to lift your heart to him. And we're all going to join you in this prayer, okay? So let's do this right now. Say, Father God, today I give my life to you. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for me. I believe you've risen from the dead. Be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. Be my leader. Forgive me my sin. Forgive me my mistakes. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you that you accept me. Jesus, disrupt my life. Give me the desire to obey you and send me on a new mission that's all about your glory. And thank you 
that I'm a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys should like, put your hands together and celebrate for these guys or something because that was really cool. Congratulations. Congratulations. You know, here's, I want to ask you to do something before you leave in just a few minutes because we're going to worship in just a second. And maybe for, you, maybe for some of you, this is your first time worshiping as a follower of Jesus. So enjoy it. But if you made that decision and the seat back in front of you or if you're sitting in front and there's not a seat back, just reach around, grab someone's purse, take what you want, but grab the card in the back of your seat that says, I said yes to God. I want you to fill it out. You see how they lit up these little banners right around the, uh, the auditorium where it says yes? Drop it off. Give it to the person standing there because Cornerstone cares enough about you to want to help you take the next step in this journey with Christ. There is a process, not a process of forgiveness that just happened, but to know him more and more and more. That's what the local church is all about. And they want to be a part of that with you if you'd like them to. So fill that out, drop it off, and uh, they'll get in touch with you, okay? Let's stand for just a moment. Let's worship and be thankful for what God did. I don't know, uh, Ray, he might not even be able to hear me, but I, there was probably about 50 people today that did what some of you did just now. And if all 50 of those people gave their life to Christ, Maybe that's normal for Cornerstone, but I'm telling you what, that is stinking cool, man. It's awesome, isn't it? Praise God for it. Come on, let's worship God.